are in Ephesians chapter 4, so I encourage you to turn there this morning. And we are going to be in our last week, I believe, in verses 11 through 16. And so I invite you to turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. Uh, that is our gift to you. Please take it and read it and use it and be blessed by it. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. We're going to read together. And at the end of that reading, I'm going to say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you then to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's read together. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This morning we're going to, as I said, spend our last week looking at these few verses, 11 through 16. And we have been spending time kind of going through these different sections talking about the gifts that God has given to all the members of the church and also the gift that He's given to the church generally through officers whose entire focus and work is centered, centered or centralized on the Word of God. And so now as we carry on and we looked last week and we saw how that all of this giving of gifts, the, the officers whose ministry is centered on the Word and the equipping then of the saints by those ministers is so that the body can be grown, matured, and built up in love into Christ. And so there's one verse here at the end in verse 15 that I want us really to focus on this morning because it kind of comes down to how this all happens is wrapped up really in this verse in Ephesians 4, verse 15, where it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Now the rather there that he's talking about is in uh, contrast to what he says here, being carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So rather than uh, just every new season, a new wind of doctrine blowing through the church, and it's like we're always having this sort of like uh, new revelation of God. Every you know, spring, summer, winter, fall, there's something new. No, we have the Word of God. And we will confess with uh, Hebrews chapter 1 in the opening verses 
where the, the preacher in Hebrews says that God, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. We, we see now that, that in Christ, in God coming in the flesh, and, and all that was written about Him, which fulfilled the Old Testament, is contained in the New Testament, we're not looking for some new revelation. We have the full, complete revelation of God right here in the words of Scripture. And so here Paul says, we're not looking, we're not looking to be carried about by every wind of doctrine uh, or by craftiness and deceitful schemes, meaning that we shouldn't be somehow coming to each other and trying to trick each other into obeying Christ. We shouldn't have to try to uh, uh, somehow connivingly convince each other of the truths of Scripture and somehow get you down the road where suddenly you go, Oh, what happened? Oh, I, I was duped. That's, that's not how it's supposed to go. Scripture is clear. It's, as they would say, perspicuous, right? It's, it's clear on all the things that matter as far as life and godliness. And so we should be able to simply, clearly, purely teach the Word of God without any kind of pretense, without any kind of, of uh, somehow undergirded, twisted desires of trying to, to fool or dupe people. That's not what the church of God is supposed to be about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about what his ministry looks like, what our ministry should look like, what our ministry to each other should look like. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He carries on, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. So he's not propping up himself as an example, but rather he's simply proclaiming Christ. He says, we, we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Remember, when we were going through the first part of, of this passage here, and we said that the word ministry really is derived from the same word as we get deacon from. It means servant or service. And so really when he says we are your servants, that's exactly what ministry is. It is serving. This morning I am here to serve you by bringing the truth of the word of God to you as the body. And, and, and I include myself in that, that, that I'm, I'm also being served by the word of God this morning along with you. So he says, for we are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Something that he says here that is really important is here in verse 4, where he says, in the case, in their case, meaning those to whom the gospel is veiled, it is veiled because their minds have been blinded. Something that we need to understand when we get here to Ephesians 4, and we're talking about speaking the truth of the word of God to each other in love, there will be times where we think that someone might be a believer or we're trying to speak the truth of the word of God to someone who is an unbeliever and they just can't receive it. They can't know it. They just don't understand. And it's very possible that in that case, their minds have actually been veiled uh, from the gospel. And what's needed there is not speaking the truth in love in a sense of, hey, get your act together, but really speaking the, the, the ultimate truth in love to them, which is actually that while their act was not together, that at just the right time, Christ died for sinners like them, like us, so that they can believe the gospel, so that veil can be torn from their mind, so that they can see and perceive the spiritual truths of God, because the spiritual truths of God can only be received by those who are spiritual. And until the gospel has awakened us in faith by the Holy Spirit, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins and unable to perceive spiritual truths. So we're looking here at Ephesians 4, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. So instead of trying to engage in cunning, instead of trying to engage in some kind of, of manipulation, rather we are to boldly, simply proclaim the truth of the word of Christ. And so we look here and he says that rather our ministry, our service to each other, should look like speaking the truth in love. And while doing that, we will find that we will grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. And that is our goal, is it not? <laughs> That's our goal, church. <laughs> to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Over and over again in the book of Acts, as you see uh, the early church, you will see this phrase that they became obedient to Christ. That, that is our goal. That is what discipleship looks like. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who is continually, progressively becoming more and more obedient to Christ in every part of their life. And you and I are on that journey where our goal, our desire should be that in every part of our life, we would be coming, we would be becoming, does that work? We would, we would continue to become, there we go, more and more obedient to Christ in every area of our life. You mean there's more than just one area that we're supposed to be obedient to Christ in? Yes, in every area of your life. In every place where you are making decisions, the goal should be that you would become more and more obedient to Christ in every area of your life. And that's a, that's a big goal. Because I have a lot of different areas of my life, 
right? And so do you. You mean that Jesus should actually be impacting every decision that you make? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. And before we go crazy thinking about what all that could be, we need to be reminded that God has not sent us into that journey alone, but rather he's given gifts to the body so that the body can build itself up in love, which means what? That we are not going to grow up in every way into the head, which is Christ alone. And that if we're trying to grow up in every way into the head, which is Christ alone, then we're actually doing it the wrong way. Not only the wrong way, we're doing it, we're not doing it. We're attempting to do something that cannot be done in a way, and the way that we're doing it is why it cannot be done. Why? Because the way we are built up in every way into the head which is Christ is through the service of the body of Christ ministering to each other by speaking the truth. What truth? The word of Christ to each other in love. So how? How do we do that? Well, there's a couple of things we need to understand first and foremost. Number one, what we need to see in this verse this morning that is critical for us in our context, in our day and age, is this. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. We live in a day and an age where people want to say that speaking the truth in and of itself is not loving. And that's just not true. <laughs> it's not true. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. And one of the best ways that we can love someone is by telling them the truth. Think about it. Think about your relationships. And think about what is one of the primary concerns that you have in your relationship, is it not the presence of honesty and truth? If it's not, you're lying. And you're lying to yourself. Because one of the things that is necessary for that relationship to carry on is the presence of honesty and truth. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. And we've already established here that the truth that we are speaking about here in Ephesians 4 verse 15 is the same truth that Jesus talked about in his prayer in John 17 when he said, Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, right? And we know from Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, he begins to unpack for them the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning what? 
concerning himself. And so if the word of God is the truth that we're meant to be sanctified in, then that word of God is a specific word concerning a specific person who is Christ. Which is why when Paul gets to Romans chapter 10 and he says faith comes by hearing, he says hearing comes correctly by the word of Christ. He unpacks that for us. He distills it for us so that we can understand that the word that we are looking for is not just all the words of Scripture. We're looking for the words of Scripture as they pertain to Christ, who He is, what He's done in His work for us and on our behalf. And so we've established that this is the truth we're looking for. This is the truth that we're meant to be speaking to one another. It's the truth of the Word of God as it pertains to Christ and His redemption of His people and the gospel of His death, burial, and resurrection. So the question then becomes, how or where do we begin in speaking the truth and love to one another? Well, church, where do we begin? Anybody? Genesis, exactly, in the beginning. What does that sound like? Once upon a time? In the beginning, God. And right off the bat, the stage is set for us that What we are about to enter into is a story not about ourselves, but rather about God. But in that story that God is writing about Himself, something incredible has happened. Something incredible has happened. We're going to get there in just a second about what that incredible thing is. But this is what I want you to see, is that in order to learn to speak the truth in love to one another, we need to first understand that we are born into and will forever exist in story. We were born into and will forever exist in story. A story that has a dominant arc or storyline that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And within that, there is a setting, a conflict. There's even rising action, a climax, falling action, and ultimate resolution. Okay? And the reason that stories resonate with us, right? How how much of our day on a daily basis is wrapped up in story? I mean, we could immediately go to the easy one, right? How long is Netflix and Hulu on at your house, right? What are we doing there? We, we are consuming story. But it goes a little deeper than that, right? Because when you come home from work, what's the first question that you hear? How was your day? What is that? That's an invitation to what? Tell a story. Tell what story? The story of what happened of your day. Why? Because that's where you're living. You're living in story. And there are certain things that happened within your day that 
rose and fall and rose again based on the different things and character and setting and context of what is going on. And in those things that happened within your day, you were brought face to face with things that are ultimately calling to you, inviting you to in the middle of your little story to trust the God who wrote the bigger story that your story is in. And the reason that stories resonate with us is because we were created to tell stories and we exist in one. We exist in one glorious, true story that theologians call the history of redemption. That's the story that we exist in. And it had a beginning. The beginning was in the beginning. When God created the heavens and the earth and He created all things for His glory. And in all that creation, He planted a garden and He placed a people that He had chosen and created for Himself there in the garden. And He gave them all good things. And He said to them, only one thing I require of you. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? We have a setting. We have characters. We have a main character, which is God, who is doing all of the acting in this. And the people are the ones receiving we have an antagonist, don't we? Because then in that garden came one who was telling a false story, a false gospel, saying that there was a better way, a way that you could be like God, knowing both good and evil. The serpent comes along with cunning, with a new wind of doctrine, with an underhanded way. And Eve, being tempted by the tempter, looks at the fruit and sees that it's good for food. And she takes and eats and shares with her husband. What do we have? We have a fall. And it exists in that fall. Our story existed in that fall for a very, very long time. So long that it seemed like that was what the story was going to be. That the thought and the intent of man was only evil continually and it would only be evil continually and we would just keep messing things up all the time. But something happened in this story. Right? Something happened. A rising action, as they say in storytelling. And that rising action is what gives us hope today because it's the incarnation of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Back in the mid part of the last century as the Russian communists were racing 
the United States and the rest of the world to send someone up into space. They ultimately won and they launched a cosmonaut into outer space and they brought him back. It was probably at that moment, probably the single greatest thing that had happened uh, in, at least in modern history at that time. It was, it was incredible, right? And everyone wanted to know. It's kind of like when you come home from work. It's like, how was your day, right? He, he came back from space and everyone wanted to know, what did you see? What did they want? They wanted the story of what happened. And, and he comes back and he says, We've been, I've been to outer space. I've been essentially to the heavens. And God was not there. And that was what was sent out on all the news uh, airwaves across the world when after he came out of the capsule. And a particular man, C.S. Lewis in England, wrote uh, into the paper. You know how we used to have these things called papers and you would actually like write into them your opinions and stuff in the editorial? And he writes a response to this uh, cosmonaut into the paper. And he says basically to him that him going to outer space and looking for God is like Hamlet going into his attic in the castle and looking for Shakespeare. He says it's a, it's a foolish endeavor, right? He says the only way that Hamlet could ever meet Shakespeare is if Shakespeare wrote himself in to the story. Church, that's what the incarnation is. God wrote himself in to the story. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know his name, it's Jesus Christ. The reason that stories resonate us with us is because God created us to resonate with story. Because ultimately he was going to redeem us through a story that is told to us. A true story that is told to us, a good news that is told to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in this history of redemption, we have creation, we have a fall, but then we have an incarnation. And Jesus did not only come and enter the story, but what did he do? He rewrote it. By going to the cross in the climax of the history of redemption and paying the price for our sin so that we might be reconciled to God. What is that? Resolution. And so there's a falling action in the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven as we begin to exist in an already not yet state waiting for the ultimate resolution which is the new creation. 
If you will look at all of your favorite stories, you will find that our best stories mirror this story. Creation, fall, redemption, and reconciliation. Every great story follows that same pattern. And if we begin to look at our own lives, we will find that God has actually written that pattern into our lives as well. And it's a repeating pattern sometimes. Where we go through seasons of creation, where we've found a place of peace and rest and safety. And then something happens. There's a fall. And in that fall, that's where we're invited into trusting in Christ. Because in that fall, we need to look to the ultimate climax, which was the redemption of Christ, to see Him as enough for us to save us from this fall as well as from that fall. It comes in many different shapes and forms, but the way we know that we're living out of the fall rather than out of the redemption is when our lives begin to revolve around our idols. And our idols are things like approval. Where we need, we feel this need to please God or others or ourselves. Or our lives begin to exist around our reputation or seeking to control everything. Or we're wrapped up in our insecurities or in our own successes, or maybe our failures, even. We get really busy trying to fill our schedules so that we don't have to think about the fall that we are existing in. It manifests itself in consumerism or some kind of radical independence where we think that we don't need anybody else. Aloofness can be an idol where we stay removed and won't commit, won't open up, won't submit to the people that God has surrounded us with. These are the things that reveal what our idols are. not only to ourselves, but to each other. And it's as we live and get to know one another, if we will listen, if we will observe, we will start to see and hear those things in each other's life. And that's when we enter into each other's stories and speak a better word into their life, the word of Christ, to remind each other of the gospel and to call each other into obedience to Christ. So I want to use a story to tell you, show you how we enter into each other's stories to speak the truth in love, okay? So turn to Galatians chapter 2. 
Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And Paul is writing a letter to the church in Galatia. And here in the church in Galatia, he is battling these people that we call Judaizers. And these Judaizers had come into the church of Galatia and had, begin, had begun to pervert the gospel of Jesus by coming in and saying, no, 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 I know Paul said, you know, this whole grace by faith in Christ alone business, but really, if you really want to follow God and be his people, you actually need to become Jews. And that begins with uh, all you guys uh, getting, getting a little cut, all right? Circumcision. We got to start keeping the law here. And so Paul comes and writes this letter to combat these Judaizers, and he shows them the importance of remaining steadfast on the scandal of the gospel and the grace that is offered in it by telling them a story, a story of how he spoke the truth in love to somebody, a very important person. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch. Now, we've got to do a little bit of work here because if we don't know who Cephas is, we miss how awesome this story is, okay? Cephas is Peter, like the Peter. Like, not Peter, Paul, and Mary, Peter, James, and John. One of the disciples, one of the closest disciples, the one who we talked about in the creedal section where we said, he answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus is like, yes, and on that statement of faith, on that rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? That Peter. Right? The Peter who is so like zealous for Christ that he's going to pull out his sword and lop somebody's ear off. Mind you, it was the wrong decision, but that's how zealous he was for Christ, right? And Jesus picks it up and heals his ear. The Peter who on the day of Pentecost stood up while everyone was gawking and preached the first sermon of the New Testament. And 3,000 people came to know Christ that day because of the Holy Spirit. That Peter, okay? So that's who shows up. So when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain people came from James, James the brother of Jesus who was leading the church in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right, so let's unpack this. Peter is with Paul and Barnabas and some of the other 
uh, Jews in Antioch. And Antioch is the capital of the Syrian part of the Roman Empire. It's a metropolitan area. It's filled with Gentiles. And, and there we see the gospel breaking into the Gentiles. Uh, and as it does, something's happening. Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, has already had his episode with Cornelius, where the sheet lowered down with all the unclean animals, and God's telling Peter, kill, take, kill, and eat. And he's like, no, I've kept myself pure from you. He's like, I'm telling you, take, kill, and eat. No, I've kept, hey, take it, kill it, eat it. Don't say what I've said is clean is unclean. And then there's a knock at the door, and it's Cornelius, right? A Gentile. And Peter goes to them, he preaches the gospel to them, they receive the gospel, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, just like on the day of Pentecost, and the gospel breaks into the Gentiles. And Peter's okay with it, he's good. He goes, he's in Antioch, and he's there with them, and what is he doing? He's extending the right hand of fellowship. He's sitting at the table with them and they're eating and they're drinking and they're glorifying God and enjoying each other's fellowship. And then something happens. What happens? A posse from Jerusalem shows up in Antioch from James, the head of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And as soon as they walk through the door, Peter's like, oh... Okay then, hey guys, and he removes himself from the Gentile table where he was probably enjoying delicacies like bacon, which were not kosher, and he walks over and he only begins to eat with the other Jews. Now, maybe, you know, these were his boys and he just missed them. He wanted to go say hi. What's, what's the problem? The problem was that, as it says here, Paul could see that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is where we get the idea of orthopraxy, right practice, where we say things like orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy, right? We can't just believe the right things. We need to be obedient to those things and walk rightly in step with that which we say we believe. That's what Paul is addressing here. That our true and right beliefs should lead us into true and right living in obedience to Christ. And here, Paul says that Peter stood condemned. And so he comes to him before them all because he was one of the leaders of the church. And he says to him, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, remember he was eating with the Gentiles before the Jews came, living like a Gentile. Kosher wasn't a problem. We're all one in Christ. We're enjoying the good gifts of God together. He says, if you do that, then how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Right? Paul uses this story to prop up what he's about to say in the next couple of verses, which really are the thesis of the whole letter to the Galatians. Let's read together. In verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What Peter was unwittingly perhaps doing in removing himself from the Gentile table and placing himself with the Jews and neglecting fellowship with the Gentiles in that moment was somehow without words but by example showing them that it was by keeping the law that they were right with God. It showed that his conscience was condemned within him, which means that he needed to go over here, what? To do something. To keep the law. Maybe God won't be pleased with me if I don't keep the law. And even if that's not what he was doing, those Judaizers who were coming from Jerusalem were doing that. And Peter's association with them in that segregation was enforcing that evil anathema message that we're justified by works rather than by faith alone in Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 17, he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So if I prop up the law again in order to keep it to be justified, I have proven myself to be a transgressor, he says. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Then he gets to these famous two verses, 20 and 21. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying if Peter could have kept the law and been righteous, there was no reason for Jesus to die. But the reality is, by works of the law shall no man be justified. So this is what we have. We have a story. We have a setting. Antioch, the first missionary city. We know by then going to Acts 13, that then from there in Antioch, the church gathers around and lays their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sends them out as missionaries to the Gentiles so that that gospel message can be spread across the world. We have the characters of Paul, Peter, Barnabas, Gentiles, and more Jews. And we have creation in the story. And where's creation in the story? Creation is in verse 12. For before certain people came. What does that mean? It means before certain people came, everything was good. Right? All was well in the garden of Antioch as they were enjoying from every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? 
What was the tree of knowledge of good and evil in this moment? Propping up works of the law instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have a fall. What's the fall in this story? The fall in this story is in verse 12 as well, in where it says that Peter drew back, separated himself, and feared the circumcision party. So all was good in the hood, and then what happened? Peter listened to a false message that he needed to draw back, separate himself because of fear of these people. And in that, what happens? The plot thickens. Not only did Peter go over and separate himself, but Barnabas was deceived as well, and the rest of the Jews began acting hypocritically as well. So we need in this moment of a thickened plot of fall and conflict, what do we need? We need someone to enter into this story, right? We need incarnation. And what does Paul do? Paul enters into the story and he speaks the truth in love to Peter. He opposes him to his face. Now, this sounds really harsh. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, you know? And then I said to Cephas before them all. I mean, this sounds like intense. So we need Paul Harvey's the rest of the story, right? Turn to 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3. And this is what we have. We have the rest of the story here. Don't you just love how the Bible works like that? In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, uh, let's start in verse 14. The end of Peter's last letter to the church. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Essentially, what is Peter saying there? He's saying, let your practice match what you believe. Right? Let orthodoxy create orthopraxy in your life. That's what he's saying. Who was the one who needed that correction earlier? Oh, it's Peter. That's right. Okay, carry on. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, listen to this, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, I love this next part just because I'm a geek, okay? It says, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So, have you ever read Paul sometimes and you just, you're like scratching your head when he's like, The good I want to do, I don't do. The bad I know I shouldn't do, I do. Who can save me? And you're like, Paul, what are you talking about? Sometimes what Paul says is hard to understand. And I love that Peter, like, he's there. He's like, hey, anybody? Can I get a witness? Sometimes it's hard to understand, right? But what does he say? He calls him his beloved brother, okay? His beloved brother, and what else? He talks about the wisdom that was given to him by God. And at the very end, he 
calls what Paul has written Scripture. He recognizes what Paul has written as Scripture, which includes this really bad-looking story about himself in Galatians chapter 2. So what do we see? We see that when Paul entered into that story and spoke the truth in love to Peter, though he stood condemned, what happened? Reconciliation. There was resolution. What do we know happened from that story because of the result of Acts 13? That Paul's word was heeded. That the Jews and the Gentiles quit segregating themselves. And not only that, but from that very church in Antioch, they gathered together, they rallied behind Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them out to the rest of the Gentiles so that the gospel could go out to the rest of the world. In this story, we see what it looks like to enter into each other's stories and speak the truth in love to one another. He didn't just come and condemn Peter. He came and he challenged him with the gospel. The gospel that said it wasn't about being a Jew or a Gentile. It wasn't about keeping the law. It was about being found in Christ that made him right and justified before God. Church, we need to be in a place where we can begin to live this out with one another. Where did this happen with Paul and Peter? It happened while they were gathered around tables, eating and sharing in food and fellowship with one another. Why? Because that's where relationship happens. Now, I know that in Redemption Hill, and I love this about us, we know how to hang out on the Lord's Day, right? Like, we get done, and for the most part, people here just hang out, and they talk, and what are you doing? You're sharing stories. You're talking about your life, how this week went, the plans that you have for for the coming week, the things that are going on, what's happening in your life. You're sharing stories. But the large part of Sunday morning is spent with you, with your back to everybody else. Now, how much can we get to know each other with our backs to one another? How much can we get to know each other's stories and the things that are going on in each other's life with our backs to one another? How how can we begin to hear the way our idols are being manifested in one another's lives in order to speak the truth and love to one another with our backs to one another? Let me give you a clue. You can't. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. And the life of the church is not all on Sunday morning. Sunday morning has a supreme role and purpose in the life of the church. Why? Because we are called to gather together under the preached word and the sacraments administered 
We are called to gather together, to be informed by the Word of God. But then we are called to not just scatter individually into the rest of the city for the rest of our week, but we're then called to gather in smaller ways with one another throughout the city. Why? So that we can face one another. So that we can know one another. So that we can share our stories with one another and be known by one another. Why? Because stories are awesome. No. Because our stories are true. And our stories reveal our idols. And as our idols are revealed, we are invited incarnationally into each other's lives to begin to speak the truth and love to one another so that we can be built up in every way into the head which is Christ. So that we can grow up and mature with one another into Christ. So that we can be called into obedience to Christ. Why? Because that's where joy and rest and peace are found. But if we're going to do that, we have to heed James' advice in James 1.19 when he says, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And the anger goes both ways. And the listening goes both ways. And the speaking goes both ways. But if we'll do that, if we'll enter into that, if we will be courageous enough to believe that God in His grace is big enough to fix it even if we blow it by sticking our foot in our mouth or saying it the wrong way or at the wrong time, if we'll trust that God is big enough to fix those moments and be courageous enough to actually do this, then we will see this body grow up together in love. but you'll never do it if you don't trust that the gospel is really enough. You won't ever speak the truth in love to somebody if you don't trust that the gospel is enough for you. Why? Because you don't want someone speaking the truth in love to you. And at the root of all of our idols is simply that. Not believing that Christ and his gospel is enough. But if we did, and if we will, we will, by the Spirit, with boldness, enter into each other's stories and begin to speak the truth in love to one another. It is happening. It is happening, and I uh, praise God for that as we begin to come around those who have
started to speak the truth in love to one another. I have one warning and then we're done. So do we need to do it? Yes. How do we need to do it? In love. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. That's how we need to do it. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get anger. And we need to choose our words wisely. We need to consider the hearts of our brothers and sisters as we do it. We're not seeking to crush, we're seeking to build up. And so we heed the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, when he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now that's not ultimate justification there, in the sense of right standing before God. That comes, as Paul said in Galatians 2, by faith in Christ alone. But we need to understand that we will give an account for our words. So when you hear me say we need to speak the truth in love to one another, that's not a license to run around just tearing each other apart for every little thing that you think might be wrong with them. What is the truth we're supposed to be speaking to one another? It's the truth that pertains to Christ. It's where we are not trusting and resting in Christ. It's not that you... It's not because you disagree with how they're raising their kids or what decisions they're making in their work or whatever. Now, some of those decisions might be influenced by whether or not they're trusting in Christ. But you won't know that until you know them. The truth that we're called to speak to one another is the truth as it pertains to Christ and how and where we are trusting Christ or not. Point each other back to Christ. And then remember this, that the only accountability that truly works is the accountability that's invited. The accountability that's invited. And what we need to begin to do is rather than waiting for people to come and speak the truth and love to us, we need to invite a few people that we trust to do that. And you're not going to trust anybody until you know somebody, so you've got to get to know some people. And that's why we have missional community. And we invite you guys into missional community where you can begin to live this stuff out because we know that's where this maturity is going to begin to come from. A few questions to ask. If you have your pens, you can write them down. I'll post these later on where you can find them. If you want to seek to speak the truth in love to someone and even to yourself, these are questions you must ask. What do they or I find identity and purpose in? What do they or I find identity or purpose in? That will tell you what they see as their place of peace and rest and safety. And it may or may not be in the right place. Okay? Then ask, what is their or my primary problem? 
What is the primary thing that they're dealing with? What is the fall action there? And then ask, what do they or I believe will save them or me? What, what, what do I really believe is going to save me? And this answers the question as to what our idols are. I've got problems in my marriage. Relationship is not what it should be. That's my primary problem. What do I think is going to save me? A bouquet of flowers? A funny joke? That special feeling? If, if I'm looking to those things to save my relationship and my marriage, I'm looking to the wrong things. Because here's the truth, guys. The same thing that's going to save you from your primary problems in life is the same and only thing that can ultimately save you. And that's Jesus Christ. Okay. Lastly, ask, where do they find hope? Where do they find hope? And that will begin to identify for you where and how you can begin to speak the truth in love to your brothers and sisters. This is something that we'll continue to unpack in missional communities and really is a, a primary function of our missional communities is learning how to speak the truth in love to one another so that we can be matured and grown up into the head which is Christ in every way. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God, this word that comes to us in story form. God, a story that is not ultimately about us. And so, God, I pray that you would deliver and free us from looking to ourselves to save ourselves. I pray, God, that you would free us from seeing ourselves as the primary main character in this story and lift our eyes to see Christ, Him crucified, buried, and risen, ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father as our conquering King, our Savior, our Lord, and the main character of our story as well. I pray, God, that you would give us boldness Boldness that comes from faith in the gospel to begin to enter into each other's stories and speak the truth in love to one another and call each other into obedience to Christ. Obedience that comes not out of fear, hoping that we will somehow earn a right place with God, but obedience, God, that leads us into joy, knowing that it is not our obedience that earns the well done from the Father, but rather Christ. Lead us in this today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.